0: I'm Curtis Schaefer.
1: I'm Martine Halverson Taylor. Welcome to Sacred and Profane. On each episode, we explore the ways religion shapes how we act in and think about the world around us.
0: How we imagine ourselves as people, as citizens, and how we treat each other.
1: Our story today covers a lot of ground, both literally and figuratively. It's about an ancient project that spanned thousands of miles. It raises big questions about human and animal suffering and what different religions have in common and if there's such a thing as a universal practice. It's also about comic books, one comic book in particular.
2: There was a wonderful, wonderful comic book put out by the series called Amar Chitra Kata, like immortal tales in comics. That's our colleague Sonam Khatru. My name is Sonam Khatru. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies here at the University of Virginia. Sonam grew up in Hyderabad, India.
0: And Sonam, uh, this comic you read as a kid seems to do what comics do best, tell the tale of a worthy and larger-than-life hero who overcomes great difficulties to achieve his destiny. And that hero just happened to be one of India's great emperors. That's
2: right, Ashoka that was That was the hero of my childhood.
1: Ashoka is in many ways a perfect modern comic book hero, despite being born in the third century before the Common Era. He was one of South Asia's most successful empire builders. By the end of his life, he ruled an empire extending from Afghanistan across most of what's now modern Pakistan and India.
0: The comic version of Ashoka wasn't just powerful, he was exciting. In the comics, Ashoka rises up from obscure origins. He was an overlooked younger son of a king in northern India who surpassed all his brothers, especially when it came to war. And his story had romance, too. He married for love after meeting the beautiful daughter of a local merchant as he marched into battle.
2: That that really, that was a shocker for me, was what the comic book said. It was just a, it was like romantic, this romantic vision of kind of the wild west of India's past when more things were possible and, and they didn't have to read Wordsworth in school. I want to take you
0: into the comic a little bit. You showed us a page where Ashoka is looking out over a field of slain enemies. That's right. And he says, heaps of dead men, we have killed many. And and then his right-hand man says, over 100,000 men to be precise,
2: your
1: majesty. (laughs) It's very (laughs) important to
2: be precise.
1: So those heaps of dead men show what is perhaps Ashoka's most infamous military victory, the conquest of Kalinga.
2: That's right. Kalinga was uh, the easternmost region that had managed to resist Ashoka's dominion. Kalinga was celebrated for its sense of independence, and they resisted. They resisted Ashoka's empire bitterly to the end. So it's, it's sort of a last stand, and Ashoka raises the country to the ground.
0: you get the sense that he's starting to feel bad mm-hmm.
2: about what he's done from what his own voice tells us apparently it was so bad <laughs> the, the the outcome of this campaign was so bitter and so complete it was like total annihilation of this this place and its way of life that uh, he could not stomach it that something changed
1: So this wasn't just a belated regret invented by a writer later to give a backstory for a comic book hero. We have an idea of what Ashoka was thinking as he looked out on the dead at Kalinga. That's because he began writing down his thoughts about what had happened there, about how what he had done was wrong, and how there must be a better way. His words were carved into rocks and pillars across his empire, from the Kandahar Valley in Afghanistan, to the South Indian subcontinent.
0: I'll just say it's hard for us to imagine in the Internet age how much effort it would have taken to do this 2,000 years ago. This isn't just one monument that we're talking about. It's dozens that we know about and maybe dozens more that we don't know about carved and then inscribed with these messages. That's extraordinary in and of itself for South Asia at the time. Really, it's extraordinary for anywhere 2,000 years and more ago. And it's even more extraordinary because these edicts were translated into languages from all over Ashoka's empire. They were carved in local languages from South Asia. They were also carved in Greek.
1: And
0: in Aramaic.
1: Zena. The Machaze, Kulhum, and Nashan eat Ahsinan. Ah, the Nunia Hadan,
2: Apa Sinaveth,
1: the Paribasta Heven,
2: Kaimeta Autus,
1: Bahu Kayane, Epilach, Dane, Hassan, Psygosi, Paribasta. But what's most extraordinary is what these edicts actually say.
2: And in these edicts, the beloved of the gods, the king of benevolent gaze, some of Ashoka's titles speaks to us directly. The beloved
3: of the, beloved the gods, of the gods. King, the king of benevolent, of benevolent gaze, gaze Piyadassi, conquered, conquered the Kalingas 8 years after his coronation. 150,000 were deported, 100,000 were killed, and many more died from other causes. Beloved of the Gods is deeply pained by the killing, dying, and deportation that take place when an unconquered country is conquered. But Beloved of the Gods is pained even more by this, that those of different religions who live in those countries, that they are injured, killed, or separated from their loved ones. Even those who are not affected by war suffer when they see friends, acquaintances, companions, and relatives affected. These misfortunes befall all as a result of war, and this pains beloved of the gods.
2: He's overcome, uh, as he says, by compassion and sadness, that he's distressed. And, and,
1: and voicing regret.
2: And voicing regret.
1: Which is... It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. (laughs) Uh, It's
2: unusual for the time in the ancient world for anyone to express their inner life, much less express something by way of regret. Can you imagine, say, Alexander the Great, that frat boy of the ancient world? Can you imagine Alexander saying anything by way of apology for all the havoc he wrought? Ashoka takes a step further when he says um, suffering is what we want to avoid. If that's what we're concerned about, we should also consider the kinds of suffering we, we mete out to animals. He announces that living beings, both human and animals, ought not to be persecuted in any way, because nothing good can come off it.
3: The Beloved of the Gods, the King of Benevolent Gaze, Piyadasi has caused this edict of morality to be written. Here in my domain, no living beings are to be slaughtered or offered in sacrifice.
2: And this leads me to one of my personal favorite edicts where Ashoka confesses the difficulty with becoming entirely vegetarian.
3: Formerly, in the kitchen of the beloved of the gods, hundreds of thousands of animals were killed every day to make curry. But now... With the writing of this moral edict, only three creatures, two peacocks and a deer are killed. And the deer, not always. And in time, not even these three creatures will be killed.
2: So I find this extraordinary. I, I, I used to think of voices of antiquity preserved for us in these ancient Twitter accounts of empires to be completely unyielding and inflexible and, in a sense, impersonal. But here you've got this guy confessing. That, you know, it, it's wrong to eat meat and you know, I'm trying, I'm trying, I really am, but, you know, I've got it down to just the peacock curry. It's a little too good to give up, mm-hmm. but we're working on it.
1: I'm almost but not yet a vegetarian is also a way of modeling the difficulty of, I think that's of right. the conversion.
2: I think that's right. And I think it makes it very human that the idea that the, the exemplification of morality is a process and, there, mm-hmm. and and it's going to involve setbacks and it's difficult – so exemplifying that process has to involve the confession of frailty.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Again, something you would not expect no, to hear from uh, political leaders today. That's right.
0: Sonam, where are these ideas coming from in Ashoka's edicts? Beats
2: me. No, I'm just kidding. That's a great question, Curtis. I think I'm going to answer the question with the help of Ashoka. He for the first time recognizes that there is a common emphasis at this time to be found across traditions, whether these traditions be Greek traditions like Stoic or Epicurean philosophies, um, Iranian traditions of self-control and fasting, or Indic traditions like Buddhists and Jains and uh, Brahmanical traditions. And Ashoka seems to want to say the things that matter most to these religious traditions or philosophical traditions are not what separate us. They are precisely what bind us together.
1: And so what Ashoka is doing is he's identifying what those things are.
2: That's right, and broadcasting them so so as to be more freely available. Interesting. There is an emphasis on what we might call practices of self. Not only vegetarianism, but various varieties of self-control Uh, the regulation of one's emotions, the regulations of one's speech, and the regulation of one's uh, mental states, the kinds of states one is expected to cultivate, generally being guided by ethical considerations of how to lessen suffering and harm. This is available to everyone, to kids, to parents, to farmers, to uh, construction workers. Anyone can take themselves to be potential practitioners of these virtues.
0: So that's great. He had a
2: pluralist sense of self-cultivation, but he's a Buddhist, isn't he? Okay, this is interesting. There's no doubt that he was personally committed to the Buddhist tradition. And uh, he speaks of himself that way and speaks very differently when he's addressing members of the Buddhist tradition. But this did not stand in the way of his public commitments to a pluralized conception of morality. And that's very important that no part of his administration Was invested in promoting Buddhism at the expense of any other tradition. And he tells us this explicitly.
3: Whoever praises his own religion due to excessive devotion and condemns others with the thought, let me glorify my own religion, only harms his own religion. And if there is cause for criticism, it should be done in a mild way. But it is better to honor other traditions for this reason. By doing so, one's own tradition benefits, and so do other traditions, while doing otherwise harms one's own tradition and the tradition of others. The coming together of traditions is good. One should listen to and respect the doctrines professed by others. The Beloved of the Gods, The King of Benevolent Gaze desires that all should be well-learned in the good doctrines of other religions.
1: This is just another example for me of how we strip all the complexity out of the ancient world. You know, we forget that it was highly globalized in its own way, highly pluralist in its own way, highly tolerant, encountered diversity daily.
2: I think one thing, though, that we're seeing with Ashoka that we ought to take note of is that that diversity and that plurality and even globalization, we may say, given the extent of his empire and the multiplicity of ethnicities and languages, is now becoming a topic of concern, of explicit concern. And so we're seeing maybe not not so much the uniqueness of the situation, yeah, I mean but, it's
1: it's one of the ways in which the ancient world can really be a resource for us right. today. I mean, you know, they they encounter the same problems and opportunities and, and th- complexity that, that's right that we do.
2: That's right. I yeah. think that's right. Yeah.
1: What's interesting is that he's promoting equality on multiple fronts. There's this idea that humans and animals are equal when it comes to suffering, for example. And there's this idea that all Religious traditions are equally sources of wisdom or potentially equally sources of wisdom, but he's not at all ambivalent about his own personal power.
2: No, no, he's not.
1: He's more equal than all the rest.
2: That's right. In fact, there are edicts where he threatens people that might conceivably resist his his imperial message of peace. And that's important. There is an overtone to the edicts where you could flip it and you could take it as a very cynical use of morality to justify the outreach of imperial might. And there are people in India today who have begun a reconsideration of Ashoka along these lines that this is, we shouldn't take these at face value. We don't really have evidence that the army disbanded, that there was an attempt to curb um, uh, imperial expansion, etc. And Okay, there's a bit of evidence to suggest this. He never apologizes in Kalinga. So the edicts that have the statements of remorse and uh, this, this, this about-face um, confessional narrative are not actually found in Kalinga. They're found pretty far from Kalinga. So it's almost as if he's telling everyone else how sorry he is about the imperial outreach except where he did um, want to maintain control. Um, And that's the cynical side. So this is really just like to let your guard down and and do some PR. Uh, I I think none of these are entirely right. I think there's got to be truth in between. I think um, one can be sincere and savvy at the same time.
0: Sonam Ashoka is clearly concerned with his legacy. And that's partially in his having opened up these philosophical and religious practices for the average person. But he says several times in these edicts that he's laying out a way for other rulers, particularly his descendants, to follow. So it makes me ask, has he any sort of political legacy?
2: That's an interesting question. On the one hand, there is the Buddhist afterlife of the stories of Ashoka, where the thrust seems to be that actually imperial power and virtue are, in a sense, incompatible. At the end of the day, that there is a tension between them. But there have been modern cases of people in political power, taking Ashoka as an example. And I think here of the first prime minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, Ashoka stands out as a moment of possibility for politics. So it's not just an example of someone trying to do better. It is that we can actually reimagine what the exercise of power should look like. There is work for institutions here, not just individuals, right? There's sometimes... Uh, The the legacy of South Asian religions is that it is up to individuals to put into practice um, the best ideals that they espouse and that these these are reserved for really extraordinary individuals. And Ashoka says time and again, it's not just the best, but even the lowest among us who can aspire to these practices. And we cannot put them off. This is an an institutional level um, reality that has to be brought into being. Like we're not going to, we're not going to, do right by ourselves or animals only as individuals. We need a larger uh, response. And I think that sense of vision is, is absolutely what we could stand to hear. So back to the fun stuff, back to comics.
0: I believe your daughter's reading these now. That's right. Yeah. So what do you hope she takes away from them?
2: I'd like her to, to have the same experience I did, which is to have a comic of Ashoka redefine what it means to be a hero. the early part of the comic, it's about the standard list of things, going out, bashing people, getting superpowers, bashing some more people, and getting the girl. But the real moment of heroism is that quiet moment where Ashoka realizes, just with clarity, the full horror of what he has done, and then decides to do something about it. So that sense of heroism, the possibility of change, I'd like for her to focus on that we can be better, we can, we can be different. There are other ways to be.
0: Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program and communications manager is Ashley Duffalo. Our intern is Laura Logan.
1: Today's guest is Sonam Khatru. Our readers are Chioki Iansen, Patrick Olivelle, Elizabeth Alexander, and Janet Spittler.
0: Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. For more on our work, head to religionlab.org or follow us on Twitter at The Religion Lab.
3: see you crazy, man. to see you crazy for this one.